This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow and Director of Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And I'm joined today by Peter Sands of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, where he has served as Executive Director since 2018. Now, over his three-plus years at the Global Fund, Peter has overseen the fund's sixth replenishment, led the development of a new strategy in consultation with the Global Fund Board and international partners, and managed the reorganization of the institution's information technology, procurement, and supply chain logistics. Prior to joining the Global Fund, Peter chaired the World Bank's International Working Group on Financing Pandemic Preparedness, and he also chaired the National Academy of Medicine's Commission on a Global Health Risk Framework for the Future. Now, all of these experiences prepared Peter and the Global Fund to play a pivotal role in helping lower and lower middle income countries secure materials to meet their population's needs during the pandemic. And the fund has contributed critical expertise to ensure the equitable delivery of therapies, diagnostics, oxygen, and other interventions to those countries over the past 20 months. So, Peter, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thank you, Catherine. Delighted to be here. So, you know, over the past 20 or so months of COVID-19, the diversion of health resources and personnel, the lockdowns we've all experienced, quarantines and supply chain disruptions have really impacted progress on meeting international goals related to HIV, tuberculosis and malaria, the three diseases that your organization works on. We saw HIV testing drop in many key countries during the first six months of the pandemic. Supply chain issues have disrupted patients' access to medications. Social distancing requirements have impacted the kind of one-on-one group or peer mentoring efforts to help patients adhere to antiretroviral treatment regimens. The World Health Organization's recent global tuberculosis report showed that TB testing and notifications were way down in 2020, particularly in populous high-burden countries where multidrug-resistant TB is a particular challenge. And I think estimated deaths from TB rose for the first time in a decade. So as we look ahead to a third year of the pandemic, what are your greatest concerns for these three issues that your group focuses on? And where do you see the impacts being felt most in the medium to longer term? Well, first of all, Catherine, you're right. The COVID-19 has been devastating for the poorest and most marginalized people in the world, not just for its direct impact, the millions who have died of the new virus, but for its knock-on impact on other diseases. And of course, we're focused on the three biggest other infectious diseases, HIV, TB, and malaria. And the impact has been different across those three diseases, and it's been different in different parts of the world. But broadly speaking, TB has been the most effective. It's been 
a disastrous reversal of many, many years of progress on TB. On HIV, actually, the HIV community did a fantastic job on keeping people on antiretroviral treatment with all sorts of innovations that made it possible despite lockdowns, despite the direct impact of the pandemic. But prevention services for HIV infection have suffered significantly. And with malaria, malaria was less directly affected in 2020, maybe more in 2021, because COVID hadn't really reached the rural parts of Africa where malaria is most prevalent. But we have had disruption to case management, to supply chains, all of which has meant that we're flatlining on malaria rather than making progress in the way that we had hoped. Now, in terms of my greatest fears looking forward, the first thing is we will not get back on track on HIV, TB and malaria towards the SDG3 goal of ending the epidemics by 2030 until we get on top of COVID-19. The waves of COVID-19, the impact on the health system, the diversion of the resources mean it's impossible to get back on track until we have a grip on this new pandemic. But I have an even deeper fear, which is that we may end up doing to COVID what we've done with what were the earlier pandemics of HIV, TB and malaria, which is sort of quietly reclassifying them when they stop killing people in rich countries and only kill people in poor countries. And then the resource commitments, the political and public visibility of the diseases diminishes, and we end up with what was once a pandemic no longer being seen as such, but still killing millions of people in poor parts of the world. And HIV and TB are two tragic examples of that. But COVID, if we're not careful, could end up being the same. So the HIV and TB communities, you know, I think have really focused on this issue of equity for the last 20 to 30 years, you know, longer really, but, you know, always insisting that there be attention to the development of, of those epidemics, pandemics in, in all parts of the world. Do you see that in terms of the focus now under COVID on equitable distribution of of access to vaccines, access to supplies, and, and other elements of the COVID-19 response. How do you see the, the influence of that emphasis on equity in the AIDS and tuberculosis movements really you know, affecting the way that we're thinking and, and talking about COVID-19 now? Well, I think we certainly learned some lessons from the fight against HIV in particular. If you think about it, it took something like eight years for antiretroviral treatments to go from being pretty broadly available in the rich countries in the world to being pretty broadly available in the poorer places. And during that eight years, millions of people died. We have done a better job this time around with vaccine access. We are still nowhere near where we need to be in terms of equitable access, but it's hard to believe it'll take eight years this time around. So I think we have learned some lessons, but I still think we aren't achieving the kind of speed of delivering on the promise of equitable access that we need to do, both because it's the right thing to do, 
but also because it's the best and most effective way of fighting a pandemic, an infectious disease. If you allow infectious diseases to run rampant amongst some populations, communities in the world, or being controlled in others, that's just not a very effective way of fighting a disease. But I also think we need to talk about equity, not just in terms of equitable access to tools, vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, and so on, but equitable definition of what counts as a pandemic. TB would meet most objective criteria of what counts as pandemic. It's now the second largest killer of people in the world after COVID-19 in terms of infectious diseases. But we don't treat it with anything like the focus, either in R&D dollars or in manufacturing or in delivery of services. And that's because it fundamentally doesn't kill very many people in the richer countries in the world. And so we have to have both a sense of equity among the delivery of tools, but we also have to have a sense of equity in the way we think about whose lives count and who should we be focusing the world's efforts on saving. So thinking about the work that the Global Fund has done during this pandemic to really help countries maintain their services you know, around AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, but also begin to respond to the pandemic, the fund began allowing countries to reprogram some savings from existing grants and also to, to use some of the resources that had not yet been, been taken up to mitigate the consequences of COVID-19 and then on health outcomes and health systems, but then also set up the COVID-19 response mechanism called C19RM, I think. So far, the fund has distributed more than $4 billion to support countries' efforts with testing, treatment, surveillance, and access to personal protective equipment. And the fund is also playing a role in the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator, or ACT-A. I think both, you know, helping to lead the diagnostics pillar, uh, doing a great deal of work on the health systems connector, and also working with some of the therapeutics issues as well. So I just wanted to ask you to describe how the fund really came to be the largest multilateral investor in grants for health systems. And what it is about the fund's historical investments in laboratory capacities, supply chain, community health networks, and other aspects of the health system that have really enabled it to play a leading role in helping countries both maintain their services during the pandemic and respond to the outbreak itself. Well, our starting point was our mission to help countries defeat HIV, TB, and malaria. And we could see in the early months of 2020, that COVID was going to cause havoc. It was going to completely disrupt everything we were trying to do on HIV, TB, and malaria. And so we quickly concluded that we needed to be making resources available to help countries both respond directly to COVID-19, mitigate the impact on HIV, TB, and malaria services, and do urgent fixes to their health systems. We started with our own resources, and then we, since then, have mobilized a 
about $3.75 billion. It was the COVID-19 response mechanism. So C19RM is what it became. And we have now deployed over $4 billion through C19RM and have effectively become the largest provider of support to lower middle income countries for all the non-vaccine components of the response. So COVAX does vaccines and we do therapeutics, diagnostics, oxygen, PPE, community systems for health, underlying bits of health infrastructure, lab networks, supply chains, disease surveillance systems, the lot. So the answer to your question is sort of how did it happen? Well, one reason it happened is simply because we saw that the people we serve, the poorest and most marginalized people in many of the poorer countries in the world, were deeply threatened by what was happening and that we felt we we had to act and act with speed. And secondly, we had already in place the relationships, the grant mechanisms, the oversight mechanisms for providing fiduciary and programmatic assurance. These were all in place in well over 100 countries. And so we could just leverage the machinery we had, which is how we were able to deploy resources very quickly into these countries because we were just leveraging systems, infrastructure, processes that were already in place. Over the past year and a half, really, um, maybe almost two years, but in op-eds and public appearances, including here at CSIS back in October, you've expressed concerns that the global focus on future pandemic preparedness may take attention away from you know, some of these core priorities of HIV, TB, and malaria. And you've argued for instead really reinforcing global attention on current threats, as well as COVID-19, as a way of ensuring countries are constantly building expertise and addressing day-to-day problems while preparing for potential new challenges as well. And, you know, you've just mentioned that tuberculosis is the second leading cause of death by infectious disease after COVID-19. And as I understand it, it really only dropped to second place, you know, in 2020, but had really, you know, been the leading cause of death for many years, I think since 2014 or 2015, and of course, supplanted HIV in in that sense. So, you know, you've, you've said that we really should be looking, well, how do we define pandemics? And we you know, in many ways, really should be looking at at TV as as a global pandemic. Now, you've also stated that pandemic preparedness financing should be extra or an add-on to existing funds for global health and not come at the expense of current health investments that that countries have, have already, you know, committed to and made through bilateral and multilateral organizations. You know, of course, at the G20 health and finance meetings just a few weeks ago at the end of October, We saw the creation of a task force to study the problem of pandemic financing, but no firm commitments, at least not yet, regarding an international funding mechanism. So can you say a little bit more about why you worry that a focus largely on future threats could leave the world's lower and lower middle income countries further behind in dealing with their current challenges? And, you know, really why you see supporting existing efforts including the kinds of health system improvements that you've talked about with laboratories and surveillance networks and the like, why you see supporting existing efforts may be more beneficial for pandemic preparedness in the long term. I think the challenge about financing pandemic preparedness as a sort of standalone topic is that 
if it comes from the same sources of funds, so if it comes from conventional development assistance for health budgets, the ODA budgets of the rich donor nations, then it's going to be competing with existing global health priorities. And the risk is that in the wake of COVID-19 and in the absolutely commendable desire to make the world safer from future threats, that we divert money from tackling diseases that are actually killing people now to diseases that might kill people in the future. Now, that, to my mind, is not the answer, because that would inadvertently actually fuel global health inequities, because we would be taking money away from programs that are saving the lives of some of the poorest, most marginalized people in the world, and using it to shore up the defenses to protect people in richer countries from future threats. And so my fundamental starting point is, if we're going to do this, we have to do this, and we should do it on top of what we are doing already. But I also think that it doesn't make sense to look at financing pandemic preparedness as a separate silo. Because actually, there is a massive overlap between the things you do to fight the existing major infectious diseases and the things you need to do to make us safer from the future ones. And we've seen that actually with the COVID-19 response. Most low and middle income countries' responses to COVID-19 have been largely based on the systems, infrastructure, capabilities put in place to fight HIV, TB and malaria, and to some extent polio as well. So it's the same lab systems, it's the same supply chains, it's the same community health workers, it's the same disease surveillance systems. And I think a better way of building pandemic preparedness is actually to do so off the back of what we are doing to fight the diseases right in front of us and killing people today. In a sense, what we can do is intentionally build, I'm not sure this is a word, but we can multi-pathogenize our disease-specific investments so that they're not just for HIV or just for TV, but are deliberately building a capability that can deal with other potential infectious threats. Because what we have seen is that the things we did to fight HIV, TB, and malaria were kind of accidentally the pandemic preparedness for COVID-19. But we can do it much better if we do it intentionally, if we deliberately build in these incremental investments and capabilities as we fight the diseases. And what's true of HIV, TB, and malaria is obviously true of what we're doing with COVID-19 itself. The way we fight COVID-19 and these processes and systems, whether it's how to run adult vaccination programs or large-scale community-based testing or large-scale social distancing and quarantining measures when needed, these are the capabilities that will be needed for future pathogens. And so if we do it off the back of successfully beating COVID-19, we'll do it in a way that really works. When you were speaking just now, it, it made me think of some of the insights that have come out of the use of gene expert, for example, where some countries that didn't have access to 
some of the rapid diagnostic tests were able to repurpose their molecular platforms for TB diagnosis to use those for COVID-19. And, you know, now there's really been an argument that, that, you know, intentionally kind of expanding that to include many different kinds of respiratory disease like, you know, COVID, tuberculosis, RSV, and others might be a way for countries to really, you know, be able to use these new technologies to address a much larger set of challenges. And, you know, I just wonder if there are other sort of technical adaptations that have been introduced during this period that you see as potentially, you know, that have been maybe adapted from the HIV, TB, or malaria world that, you know, you really see as maybe being changed and improved and adapted in in future pandemic response. Your gene expert example is a really good example, actually, of, you know, molecular diagnostic instruments that largely put in place for TB diagnosis. And, And the Global Fund has been the biggest provider of this sort of infrastructure, this sort of capability to low and middle income countries, and then were very rapidly repurposed. And one of the first things we did, actually, in the early part of the pandemic was buying COVID-19 cartridges that could be put into the gene expert machines. But it's also a good example as to how we should think about preparedness. So just to kind of illustrate this, we might be, for example, investing in a new lab to help you know, a particular place in a country heavily affected by TB by investing in, say, four gene expert molecular diagnostic instruments, the technicians, the air conditioning, the tra- you know, all, all the surrounding infrastructure to make it possible to do TB diagnosis. We could, if we were also thinking about pandemic preparedness, say, well, let's build a bit of surge capacity. The TB need, needs four, but let's buy another couple of them. And also let's train the technicians to have a broader set of skills than just TB. And let's think about the other aspects, the way reagents are stored, all the kind of different instruments you use so that you have broader capability. Now, the good thing about doing it like that on a kind of marginal basis is that when there isn't another type of infectious disease appearing, then we can use all six machines for TB and we've got even more capacity. And that if a new infectious disease does appear and it appears threatening, maybe one uses four and keeps two for TB, but has four available. If you do it in a separate way and you have, you spend the same amount of money on two incremental machines for pandemic preparedness, but they're sitting in another lab with their own technicians, well, A, they're probably not doing anything most of the time. And what happens with all these kinds of instruments is if you don't use them, they don't work when you do want to use them. And B, you don't have as many for TB when there isn't an infectious disease outbreak, and you can't repurpose some of the TB ones for the new outbreak when it happens. And so you don't have that kind of surge capacity and ability to respond to the situation because you've sort of subdivided the capacity you're investing in. And that's why we think it really makes sense to think of a lot of these capabilities as being essentially infectious disease fighting capacities that you build both for the existing ones and for any future threats. I've talked specifically here about molecular diagnostic instruments, very powerful tool, but the same logic actually goes for a range of the other key components of any health system's ability to detect and respond to infectious disease threats. 
Another example would be particularly important in much of Africa would be community health workers. Community health workers are often the connection point between remote and rural communities and the health system. And we have invested in supporting tens and tens of thousands, particularly for the fight against malaria. But community health workers are also the ultimate rural, remote area disease surveillance system. They get to see what's happening, what is causing fevers, why are people getting ill. And the more that we can give them the tools, not just to deal with malaria, but to detect and see other unusual disease patterns, things that they can't explain, things that they need more help in responding to, the more we can do that, the more we can, in a sense, create a more responsive radar screen and surveillance system that is quicker to pick up unusual patterns in diseases occurring wherever they occur. And so, again, you could do that by investing more in the training, investing more in the equipment we provide to community health workers. But it requires taking a mindset that leverages on them as a as a key way we fight existing diseases um, to fight these future threats as well. I like that example. I mean, it's really not a high-tech investment at all. It's really investing in the community workers and and their their own observation and really asking them to to serve as connectors and sentinels for what they're seeing in their day-to-day operations. Another example, if I may pick up on it, Catherine, we often talk about sort of technologies, biopharmaceutical, you know, fancy AI things and things. But one of the most critical elements in any effective pandemic response is community trust. Do the people in the communities actually believe what they're being told by the authorities? And when the medical authorities or public health authorities ask them to behave in certain ways, do they believe them enough to actually do that? And what we've seen in COVID-19 responses is how well that works is a massive determinant on how successful the pandemic response is. Now, you can't just switch on trust. You can't just decide that suddenly everybody's going to have to trust and believe everything you say about public health is right. One of the most powerful ways of building trust, and we've seen this again and again in different places, is by working with communities to solve the problems they've got in front of them now. So if communities have been engaged with the health system in, say, dealing with HIV or tackling malaria, the platform of trust you have built on which you can then deal with other things is so much stronger than if you see it as a completely separate, unrelated exercise. So you've just wrapped up your latest board meeting. There's a new five-year strategy in place for 2023 to 2028 or so. And the Global Fund is now heading toward its seventh replenishment in 2022 to support work over, I guess it's a three-year period from 2024 to 2026. And now the United States has agreed to host the replenishment sometime in the second half of the year, if I'm not mistaken. So in the next phase of work, I wanted to ask how you see the Global Fund balancing this challenge of helping countries 
regain ground lost and continue to make progress toward those global goals on HIV, TB, and malaria by 2030, while taking on greater responsibilities with respect to health security and health emergency preparedness. You know, the fund is already very much involved in uh, the ACT-A work on diagnostics and therapeutics as new therapies become available and, you know, maybe distributed worldwide. You know, the Global Fund has a great deal of experience moving antivirals around the world. And so, you know, as, as your organization becomes ever more involved in some of these aspects of pandemic response and even preparedness, do you see the Global Fund's mandate fundamentally changing over the next five to 10 years? I think our core mission is going to remain as it is today, which is to rid the world of these three, what are really pandemics, and which have been with the world for, in the case of HIV, decades, in the case of TB and malaria, centuries, three pandemics that have killed countless millions of people. But alongside that, we undoubtedly have a role to play in tackling the more recent infectious disease threats, of which COVID is the most obvious example. And in a sense, I don't see a conflict between that because actually the worst thing that has ever happened to the fight against HIV, TB and malaria has been COVID. We had to respond to COVID to be able to deliver on that core mission. And the things one does, the things we invest in, in terms of supply chains, disease surveillance, clinical pathways, community health workers, and so on, are the same system components across the different diseases. So the core of our strategy revolves around defeating HIV, TB, and malaria. But we also recognize, and the strategy recognizes, that we have a role to play in pandemic preparedness and response. Through C19RM and our response to COVID, we have demonstrated the R bit of it, the response bit of it. The Global Fund has shown that we can mobilize and deliver and deploy uh, very substantial resources to countries in a very effective and transparent and inclusive manner. On the preparedness side, I think there is a significant opportunity for us to play an important role because we are already the world's biggest multilateral provider of grants for health systems. And if we take this approach of intentionally building preparedness on a marginal cost basis, we can be a very efficient and effective way of supporting countries to not just fight the diseases killing their people now, but to better protect against future pathogens. Now, exactly how we do that is not something that we as the Global Fund will, in a sense, decide in isolation, because we have to do it in partnership with other actors in the global health community, whether it's WHO, Gavi, Unitaid, and under the sort of guidance and of the G7 and G20, the World Health Assembly. And so we deliberately, within the strategy, talked about our role in pandemic preparedness and response as being an evolving role, reflecting the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and the world itself hasn't quite worked out what the answer is, both to this pandemic 
and to the sort of future architecture of how we make us all safer from future threats. So, you know, assuming that moving forward, you will be carrying out kind of these dual functions and that these will, as you've argued, require more funding for continuity of work and services, but then adding on some of this pandemic-related preparedness. And yet, you know, we know that the global community is, is sort of exhausted after a year and a half of supporting COVID activities financially. Do you see a challenge in meeting your funding needs in this in this next round? How do you anticipate some of this, the ask for the replenishment will play out? Well, I think it's the case in sort of global fund history that we've always said that every replenishment seems to be the most difficult and challenging one. And this is going to be our seventh replenishment. And I certainly think it is the most complicated one because next year you'll have not just the need to replenish our funding for the next three years for the fight against HIV, TB and malaria. And we'll be doing that in a context where we have gone backwards or flatlined as a result of COVID-19 in a way that we have never seen in the 20-year history of the Global Fund. But you'll have that. Alongside that, you'll have the ongoing need to resource the fight against COVID-19 because much as we would like it to be the case, we won't have defeated COVID-19 everywhere in the world. And then finally, there is this need to make the world safe from future pathogens. We can't assume that the next threat will wait till COVID-19 is over. And there are significant gaps in the way that we are able to quickly identify and respond to new threats. So there will be these different agendas. And I think the critical thing is that we don't, in a sense, look at them as competing agendas, but as an overarching imperative to make everyone in the world safer from infectious diseases, whether the ones from history that are still with us, this latest one COVID-19, or the ones around the corner. And I don't just mean that as a, a bit of rhetoric, because it's actually the practical thing to do, because the things you invest in, the capacities you create to fight HIV, TB, malaria, to fight COVID-19, to fight the next threat around the corner, are the same, are largely the same things. Well, Peter Sands, Executive Director of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, thank you for joining me today to share your thoughts regarding the pandemic's impact on progress meeting global goals related to the three diseases, how the funds work with health systems strengthening and creating trusting relationships on the ground has prepared it to play a critical role in responding to the pandemic, and what your experience tells you efforts to really prepare for future pandemics need to take into account. Good luck to you as plans for the next replenishment and the next strategic period get underway. And thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. 
from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 